in the history of storytelling, either in book or film form, the arc of the sermon today, the arc of this story has been told a million times. We love this story. It's filled with intrigue and mystery. It's clandestine and secret meetings draw us in. The conniving, murderous power brokers whisper dark plans on the invader. In short, in this story, the bad guys are clearly bad, and the good guy is clearly good. He's so good. There's no confusion as to whom we want to win. A holy cold war of innuendo and accusation and status seeking. This could be a spy thriller that Robert Ludlum put together. It could be a John Gresham novel with courtroom scenes. It could be a a battle for ultimate control, uh, making fun of religion, probably starring Tom Cruise, who at some point in the movie will run very fast. (laughs) It could be any of those things. All of those things are present here. But this is the gospel, this is the good news, the beautiful story of what Jesus was doing, what Jesus was doing to bring you and billions of others to himself. Little Christians and young theologians, your task this morning, if you were written about in a book, you would be proud, you would, you would show your book that you were in to your friends at school and to Nana and Papa. And so here's your task this morning. Guess what? You're in this story. You're in our passage this morning. Your job is to look for where you're at in this part of the Bible. Look for where you're pointed out and try to figure out what's said about you. Church, this is the good news again of Jesus and all that he's done. From John chapter 11, verse 45. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. Remember, he just spoke Lazarus out of a tomb. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all. Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people than that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. And so from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness, to a town called Ephraim. And there he stayed with the disciples. 
Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. And they were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think? That he won't come to the feast at all. Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father, we need eyes. We need our ears open to grasp what you hold out to us here. Lord Jesus, we need our hearts softened and our minds quickened to see your work on our behalf. Come, Holy Spirit, and work faith in us in the reading and preaching of your word and give us life again. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. So in case you're keeping track, there are 21 chapters in the Gospel of John. And the way the author staged it, he took 11 chapters. Up to this point, we've gone through 11 chapters, and he covered basically three years. And there's 10 chapters left, and in the remaining 10 chapters, he covers about two weeks. And so everything is shifting right here. After this passage, everything goes to a much slower and much more purposed pace. Conversations and settings, the way John paints them, become much more vibrant. John wallows in the details. He relishes in all the conversations and every word we feel we can hang on. And so as we transition out of the first phase of the book and into the second, I think it's fair to ask the title of the sermon, What Was Jesus Doing? I'm going to ask that question four times this morning. What was Jesus doing? Before the story reaches its peak, This passage sits in the shadow of what he's done up to this point, and it points us clearly to what is impending right ahead. So we're going to ask that question again and again. What was Jesus doing? First off, it's clear because of where it sits right after Lazarus. They, They see these signs. It's fair for us to ask, what was Jesus doing in his miracles? Sidney Bradford went blind at 10 months old, but at age 52, he underwent a surgery that restored his vision, and he died two years after that surgery. Some of his doctors speculated that being able to see terrified and confused him so much that he was unable to readjust or process the strain of sight. And his body gave up. And even though he could see with his new eyes, he had no categories to hold what he was experiencing. And he would often, at work as a mechanical engineer, shut his eyes to get his work done without the distraction of sight. And in many respects, that's been the reaction of the Jewish leadership to Jesus' miracles. They've seen amazing deeds, and they're shocked and confused 
And it was his miracles that drove them mad. And before we unearth, before we get into the, the meat of what Jesus was doing in miracles, I'd like to show you something I think is very useful. The people of this passage, just a couple chapters, one chapter ago, two chapters ago, I'm not good at math, they had seen a man born blind from birth, and Jesus spit into the dust of the street and put spitty mud on his eyes, and he could see. They had just recently seen Lazarus dead for four days and bound up like a comical pharaoh come waddling out, tied up from the grave. They had seen him feed 5,000 people with fishes and loaves. They had seen him walk on water. They had seen him make a crippled man walk and bunches of other amazing feats. And they still didn't believe. The text says many of them who were with Mary saw with their own eyes that Jesus shouted into a tomb and Lazarus came out and they did not believe in Jesus, but they went and tattled on him instead. And this is for your heart and this is for the world that we find ourselves increasingly living in. There is in the Western world an aggressive atheism It continues to thrive, and it always points out lack of proof and evidence and observation. And it does so condescendingly as if, if we could prove that Jesus were whom he declared himself to be, if we could replicate the resurrection, then, then they would mentally assent, they would believe, and they would have their collective mind change they would profess faith if we could substantiate the gospel and odds are better than average that many of you many of us secretly nurse some of those same doubts and if that's you please understand I'm not mocking your doubts and your legitimate questions but also please understand there's never going to be enough miracles, never going to be enough signs or wonders or science or proof for you to have faith in Jesus outside of the grace of Jesus. Our belief is a gift itself. Our faith should be treasured and it should be experienced and it should be strengthened by greater understanding and intelligent questioning an interaction with evidence. But our faith never grows in disassociated facts. Belief in the Lord Jesus is built up by repeated exposure to beauty and intricacy and creativity and wonder and mystery and delight. Evidence has never been enough to change our hearts or shape our minds. And that's not why he was doing the miracles in the first place. So let's ask again, what was Jesus doing in the miracles? There's an enormous range of answers to that question. 
Um, I suppose the, the self-aware doubters and honest skeptics believe that these are inventions and fabrications of amazing feats um, that didn't happen. Um, and they were written uh, after the fact to try and improve some of these uh, amazing and ridiculous claims that the Christians had. Many well-meaning Christians would talk about miracles as a pause in normal, that these are uh, supernatural intrusions of God into the laws of nature, where those laws are suspended for a moment. Other Christians think that Jesus is performing or showing off like a furrier David Blaine or Harry Houdini, and he's marketing the faith. He's drawing crowds to himself to display his power. And there's lots of scientifically aware Christians as well, believers who attribute miracles in Scripture to natural phenomenon. And so the Red Sea parted because there was a stiff wind blowing from the east. If you watch the History Channel and they ask questions about Jesus, that's typically who they find. They never ask normal pastors about these things. I have less and less in common with any of those views of the miracles. I actually find them detrimental. And here's the way I think I would ask you to make sense of Jesus' miracles. These are the inbreaking of the reclaimed perfection of the kingdom. They're a brief return to the way it should be, to the way it was intended. Every amazing deed that Jesus accomplished was an echo of the perfection of Eden and the greater promise of a new heaven and a new earth. Bodies made whole, dead, decapitated. The dead raised. It's banished. No lack of necessities. You want food? Here's food. Humanity and earth working in harmony. Jesus walks on a raging sea, not because he's magical, but because earth belongs to him, and in him it belongs to us. All these signs are a shadow of what awaits us when everything is set to rights. And so in his miraculous deeds, Jesus is declaring and proving that he's the kingdom bringer and that no other kingdom will stand. And that's the reason the religious authorities fought tooth and nail to silence him. He was displacing them from their positions and authority. He wasn't just going around doing sweet things for needy people. If Jesus' miracles are just social good, they don't threaten anybody. The way the author and Afroad theologian Philip Yancey puts it, How would telling people to be nice to each other get a man crucified? What government would ever execute Mr. Rogers or Captain Kangaroo? The signs Jesus performed were more than good. They were his way of reclaiming his throne. You can see in the coming chapter, verse 31 of chapter 12, the way John talks about it there. And the violence towards Christ comes in because no human ever likes to lose a game of king of the mountain. 
not at work or at home or in our spiritual life. Each of us, we're fighting to maintain control that does not belong to us. So let the miracles of Jesus and the false reaction of the Pharisees call you away this morning from clenching your fist around what never belonged to you. We're navigating in a dense fog and miracles are the light of heaven shining through however brief. In his miracles, Jesus is resetting what's normal. He's undoing brokenness that doesn't belong in his world of grace. And it's his greatest miracle that's coming soon. John would have us hear that echo backwards in John 11. Bringing life where death is reigned is coming. So what was Jesus doing in dying for the nation? Jesus is acting like his father. He's bringing in the new heavens and the new earth. And that has been his response as the Pharisees have come to him. What are you doing? What are you saying as you do this? If you don't believe in me, believe in my works. I do the works that my father is working. Jesus is acting like God among his people. And people are responding in faith. It's weak and tiny faith, but it's faith nonetheless. And the leadership, the spiritual directors, feel their influence and their control slipping through their fingers. And so as they gather together in hopelessness, they cry out, what on earth are we doing? We, we cannot get this guy to shut up. We cannot get people to follow us, but they're following him. And they throw in this line about the Romans in the middle of their drama. And they utter it here in approximately A.D. 33. If we don't stop Jesus, the Romans, the Romans are going to come if we don't kill Jesus. And then they're going to kill us. And then they're going to take away all our stuff. And so they do, they stop Jesus. The funny thing is, and John probably puts it in there as an apologetic to believe in Jesus... They do kill Jesus, and the Romans come and kill everybody anyway, 40 years later. In A.D. 70, the battle known as the Siege of Jerusalem occurs, and the temple gets torn down. So that didn't work out for them. They missed the salvation offered them in Jesus, and the salvation they attempted to craft for themselves failed miserably. And that's humanity. That sounds about right. Passing up on Christ to build something for ourselves. And it's the experience of every human in this room and on this planet that that never works out. And so Caiaphas, the high priest, speaks the concern of the leaders. They're concerned with power and authority and position And he and they have no concern for the sheep, for the people of Israel. He needs expediency, but remains unconcerned with God's action. He has no thoughts for the flock. Caiaphas was scared into murderous rage at the threat of losing his seat at the table. And this group was was driven to maintain their control and not the health and the well-being of God's children. Their fears, everything crashing down around them, 
revolves around losing their place in their nation or losing the temple, which is what they control, and losing the region of the Jews, which is who they control. So when Caiaphas utters his unintentional prophecy, he's stating, look, guys, the ends justify the means. Maybe we shouldn't kill him, but to protect ourselves, to protect our control, it's okay. The ends justify the means. That's what he meant. But God was, in the words of a sinner, what God meant in Caiaphas' wisdom was this is how I justify the world. Caiaphas said what he said from a heart of selfish protectionism, but Jesus lived it from a heart of generous sacrifice. Northeastern India is one of the wettest places on earth, and the rainforest there, any wood that they use to construct bridges across Uh, valleys and crevices, any wood that they use rots in record time because of the constant moisture. And so the local tribes have learned through the centuries how to train roots to grow across chasms. They build living bridges out of roots. I would encourage you to Google image some of these pictures. They are mind-blowing. Some of these living bridges are over 500 years old. And out of necessity, just to move across dangerous flooded rivers, they've grown these strong, permanent, living bridges to move their people from one side to another. And the good news of Jesus' work looks shockingly like that. Only your tribe is not that inventive. We don't possess the skill or the tools to escape one side for the other. All our bridge attempts rot out over time. Our mortality reminds us of its real existence in broken relationships, in growing arthritis, in old and young people that we love falling asleep here on earth. Watching the news, we see mortality, and we are destined to perish unless someone carries us across on a bridge that'll never rot. It would be better, it would be better if one died for all. And that's the way Paul says it in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul says. Verses 14 and 15. The love of Christ controls us because we've concluded this, that one has died for all and therefore all have died. And that he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. And that's exactly the heart of what John and Caiaphas and Jesus are saying and living That's what Jesus was doing when he died for the nation. Jesus took your place on the cross so you might take his place in perfect standing with God. Paul again talks about it in Romans 5. In the same way that Adam's transgression overflowed to us all, Christ's righteousness abounds. The sin of one man in perfection 
condemned us all. And one act of righteousness makes clean and brings life to all. And that's the gospel. That's the wonder of the message of Christ. That God willingly died for sinners. And that's what Jesus was doing. He was being the strong and living bridge to bring us to God. And building your life around that thought. Building your life around that singular thought. Letting that story shape your story is what it means to be a Christian. It's what it means to become a Christian. And so if you've never heard that in its depth and simplicity, if you've gotten over that, that you've heard it so many times, let me remind you again this morning, you don't move past that message. This whole church would like nothing better than to help you if you've never heard that. And so if, if that is stirring your heart, if you have legitimate questions about it, if you have silly questions about it, you should find someone and talk to someone about what it means to live in the light of Jesus taking your place. This church is a mess, but Jesus isn't. And if you come to him in faith, all your problems aren't going to go away. But Jesus will come into your problems and this church will limp alongside you in your problems. Jesus loves sinners. He died and rose for sinners. This church would love to introduce you to our God. What was Jesus doing in miracles? What was Jesus doing in dying for the nation? What was Jesus doing in gathering the children of God? The most important thing in the world to each of us is us. Secretly, we each live in a very small universe that has its axis in me. Your axis is in you. And the church, especially the Western Protestant church, of which most of you are a part, is not immune to the disease of self. And for generations, we've been enamored with individual and personal salvation. But the most important thing in the world to Jesus is the church, and not just its individuals, but the whole bride held together and unified, made beautiful by his Holy Spirit. It's not an oversimplification to say that the sole mission of Jesus in coming was to build the people of God, to gather the church of God. It's actually the reason he came the way he did and lived the way he did. It's why he died and rose the ways he did. Of all the things that he accomplished in his work of redemption, gathering and establishing scattered souls is the most essential component in Jesus' mind. Look around this room. Look around the theater. The people sitting in front of you and beside you are a perfectly wise God's plan to change the world. And there is no plan B. You're it. 
You are the evidence of God's greatest miracle in Jesus. And however concerned you are about the state of New St. Peter's PCA in Dallas, however concerned you are, if you're concerned about the state of Old St. Peter's Roman Catholic in Vatican City, however concerned you are about all the churches in Dallas, in the Metroplex, in Texas, in America, however concerned you are, Jesus is far more concerned about his church. He is, building, he is busy building us into one in himself. And the church is far larger, far broader, far messier and more diverse than any of us in this room would ever be comfortable with. And that's okay. Jesus is very good at what he's doing. And his capacity to do it well far outweighs our doubts. And notice in our passage, there are two different gatherings. The Lord's enemies gather around their council to fight for authority. They gather to plot in secret to protect their sacred space. Jesus, on the other hand, is spoken about as gathering in an act of grace, gathering the family of God publicly and welcoming them into the perfect sacred space of himself. The motivations and desires of these two gatherings could not be more diametrically opposed. They would hold and dispense grace as misers and spendthrifts. He wants to flood the world with mercy. All that they're fighting to selfishly contain, he's fighting to pour out. Everything that they were afraid to lose, temple, land, nation, and identity, everything that they wanted and plotted against Jesus to protect, they still lost, and so will you. But those are exactly the things that Jesus himself is for the children he's gathered. He is our place of worship and no temple made with man's hands. He is the fullness of all the promises of belonging and blessing and no lines on a map in the Middle East. He is true Israel. He's a new and faithful and better Moses, better Abraham. He's a new and better Adam who will not fail. As we hide ourselves in him, we are in every way bound together with him in all his perfect righteousness. And the intense love that the father feels for the perfect son belongs to us. Our temple, our land, our nation, our very identity is Jesus And that thought will change everything in your life when you come to grips with it. Sinclair Ferguson puts it this way, knowing in the very depths of my being what it means for me to be a child of God sets me free from the world's anxious quest to be somebody. If you are God's children in the finished work of Jesus, you will never be defined by anything less Not your sin, but your Savior. Not your family history, but the Trinity alive and active in the church. Not your poverty, 
or your wealth, but his brokenness for your blessing. You're not defined by your education or your ignorance. You're not defined by your job or your studies, not your accomplishments or your failures. Church, you are children of the one true king. You've been gathered, redeemed, purchased, rescued, and adopted as children. You are loved to death by the God of the universe. There is no defining fact for you that outranks that fact. As we grow and come to greater and greater grips with this, the most beautiful truth that's ever been uttered in the universe, I am God's child. We are gathered together. How we face our sin changes. How we deal with being wronged changes. How we love our neighbor changes. Everything changes. How you raise your children changes. How you work and play and grieve. Everything changes in light of that fact because everything is held in its place. You are God's child. Nothing will change that. If you're his, just like him, you can fully participate in the world without being chained to its fallen desires, just like he did. Jesus has always gathered and gifted and graced the church to reflect him in the world. And that's what he was doing by gathering God's children. What was Jesus doing lastly in not coming to Passover. The passage ends with dares being uttered and bets being taken. Word has gotten back to Jesus that the plan has been made official and there's a capture or kill order. He is wanted dead or alive, but mostly dead. Now, already uh, uh, in the 11 chapters, there's been nine other times where a group or a part of this group has threatened to kill him. They've sought his life. They've grabbed stones and he disappeared or he went out from among them. But in Caiaphas' statement to the, San, to the Sanhedrin, this becomes a sanctioned hit and everybody's on the same page now. And so Jesus goes away. He retreats to the countryside and the Jewish leadership is certain that he's afraid. What do you think? What do you think? There's no chance he's coming. He knows we're gunning for him. What do you think? Was Jesus afraid? I, I would have been afraid. I would have been dreadfully afraid. Is he finally acting normal? Has Jesus quit poking the bear? Quit staring into the face of the control holders for the nation. Has he decided, you know, this is not smart for me to keep picking fights with these folks. Did he have a schedule conflict? Is this self-protection? I don't want to get too far ahead in the series. I think Colin is preaching next week. I don't want to steal his thunder. I don't know what he's doing. But I think we know enough about Jesus through 11 chapters of John to realize at least two simple things. One, never bet against Jesus crashing a party. Jesus loves to party. 
God loves to be around the celebration of his people. And two, Messiah means anointed one. It's actually how it translates. Anointed one. Jesus is everything John has showed us. And so if he goes to this final Passover festival, the Passover, the sacrifice of the spotless lamb, the marker of God's saving provision and grace, maybe before he goes to the party, he should be Messiah. Maybe before he dies for the nation, he should be marked. Maybe before he gathers into one all the children of God scattered abroad, he should be anointed. And maybe that component is so important the way John tells the story as it unfolds, that he wants us to wonder. He wants the action to slow down as the tension ratchets up. John is expecting that we want something more than Jesus walking up with his hands together, ready to be cuffed. Or Jesus putting on furry eyebrow glasses and a big nose and sneaking in the back door. What was Jesus doing coming to the Passover delayed? There's an answer. John takes 10 chapters to tell us why Jesus waited. And as we close this morning, this is one of the few passages in the whole book where there's no red letters. Jesus isn't in here. He's talked about, but he's not talking. And even though he doesn't act or speak, I hope you see there's so much good news for us. Jesus was working to bring the kingdom near in his miracles, and he's still doing exactly that. We just lost our eyes for miracles, but they really are everywhere. Miracles happen everywhere the gospel echoes in Jesus proclaimed. Miracles happen everywhere that hearts are wrapped up in him, everywhere that old and young and black and white and brown and male and female and everything in between is united across political. There are Democrat Christians and educational. There are legal Christians and social strata. There are amazingly wealthy and dirt poor broke Christians. And there's no other place on earth that's gathered together and promised You are my children. The church itself is a miracle. And gathered this morning around the world are billions of people. Billions of people who close their eyes and talk to someone we've never seen. They read and let a book whose author we think is God shape their lives. We do it all bound together in a community of self-aware sinners. Annoying, disappointing, frustrating, and painful sinners. We confess together that the dead stay undead at the end. We've said again and again, the church through the ages, 
We are messengers and citizens from a faraway place that we've never been. And that the greatest strength of God was displayed in a naked man, gory and nailed to a cross. That's what the church has said through the ages. And the fact that any heart burns at these truths is a miracle of God's active and gracious working faith in us. Faith residing and growing in you is the greatest work of God in Christ. He's gathering us together, united and bound to the God of the cross. And this is the folly that we hold to. And this is the strength that holds us. May it now and forever be. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, Son of God, have mercy on us as sinners. Have mercy and gather us and hold us in your bosom and carry us across yourself despite our sin into the arms of a loving Father. Let us trust again in your work and strengthen us to love this grace that we might joyfully live as the church united to God in your dying and your rising. We have no greater treasure than you. We have no bigger hope than to be your bride. It's in your finished work and in the strength of your unyielding grace we ask. Amen.